Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions, big ideas, and lead you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is Austin Allison, CEO and co-founder of Picasso, a company that invented a modern way to buy and own a second home. And our host is Robin Graham, Managing Director and Head of Oppenheimer's Technology Investment Banking Practice. This episode was recorded on April 27th, 2022. Thank you for joining us. Hello everyone, Robin Graham here. I'm very pleased today to host another episode of Let's Talk Future for the Oppenheimer podcast series. My guest today is Austin Allison, who's the CEO and co-founder of Picasso. Picasso is a radically new concept in real estate, luxury second home ownership for as little as an eighth of the cost with a new model that Picasso is calling co-ownership which enables access to owning luxury second homes while also eliminating the hassle of managing one second home. Did I get that right, Austin? You got it right. Yeah, you nailed it. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today, Robin. Glad to have you. So for those of you who don't know Austin by reputation, he's a serial entrepreneur in real estate. He got started right out of college, has been a co-founder and runs several real estate technology businesses. One of those companies, Loop, he sold to Zillow, where he began a partnership with Zillow's CEO, Spencer Raskoff and took a management role with Spencer at Zillow Group for several years. Was it that collaboration that led you to co-founding Picasso, Austin? Yeah, I mean, it certainly was part of the story for sure. But but the story for me really originated when I was a child. I grew up in a small town north of Cincinnati, Ohio, and my dad was a carpenter. So I was swinging a hammer my whole life from probably age three or four and beyond. And we lived paycheck to paycheck. And I mentioned that because we definitely never had a second home. For me, a second home was what it is for most people, just a dream, not a reality. And along the way, you know, I started selling real estate when I was 18, sold all through college into law school. And eventually my wife and I had the opportunity to become second homeowners and it totally changed our lives for the better. And I wanted to find a way to make that possible for more people. So in 2019, When Spencer and I left Zillow, we always wanted to start a company together. We started talking about this idea and Picasso was born. That's amazing. So you are broadcasting from your second home today? Yeah, I'm broadcasting from my Picasso in Scottsdale, Arizona. Fantastic. So you started Picasso in October of 2020 with Spencer and Picasso is now, you know, also the fastest unicorn ever valued at over a billion inside of a year since launching. Is that correct? Yeah, that's accurate. Yep. So we we ended we actually started the company in early 2020 and then we launched Picasso on October 1st of 2020. So the first 6 months or so we were, you know, building the team, building the product, really optimizing for product market fit and then when we officially launched in October, we've been off to the races ever since. And now we're we're serving almost 40 destinations around the US and also Europe and are, are moving quickly into a lot of new markets throughout this year. Well, that's great. I think this is going to be a particularly interesting conversation for our audience. You know, you may not know this, but our audience on this podcast is primarily Oppenheimer's high net worth wealth management clients, as well as a number of public institutional investors. Most of those either own a second home or aspire to owning a second home. So I think that uh, we first discuss how Picasso might be interesting to that audience as customers, and then perhaps talk a little bit about 
Picasso's business model and the financial momentum of the business, I think that would round things out very nicely for our audience. I think one of the things our audience isn't aware of is, is Picasso's perhaps one of the largest and highest growth tech companies in real estate that most people haven't yet heard of. We categorize that at Oppenheimer as property technology or prop tech. And as you said, you're in nearly 40 second home markets now and going international. What pain points in second home ownership did you set out to solve with Spencer in launching Picasso? Or, or said another way, what is Picasso's core customer value prop for someone who wants to co-own a second home? There's a lot packed into that question. So, so I'll just sort of riff on it for a little bit and, and answer it from a couple of different perspectives. I think first and foremost, the, the number one thing that, that prevents people from realizing their second home dream tends to be cost. Second homes are very expensive to buy. They're very expensive to operate. They tend to be in very expensive markets. So just starting with the numbers, second homes are, are out of reach for most, just right out of the gate. The second factor that, that's a problem with second home ownership, at least the model of the past, is that second homes are highly underutilized. The average second home is only utilized five to six weeks per year, which means that it sits vacant for more than 10 months per year. So you take the fact that these things are already expensive and then you layer on the, the additional detail around underutilization and it makes it really hard to make sense of owning a second home. The final point that is a significant problem with second home ownership of the past is the headache and hassle associated with owning a second home. Even if you can afford you know, to buy the second home of your dreams, operating a home that's several hundred miles away from your primary home is difficult and it's not for everyone. So what we really set out to do by pioneering this new category of ownership called co-ownership is to solve those problems through a smarter, more responsible model that makes better use of these assets that have historically been underutilized. And the way that we do that is by empowering a small group of people to own a home together. And the easiest way to get your mind around this concept is imagine if you and three or four of your siblings or closest friends decided that you wanted to own a home together in your dream market, you could go do this on your own. You know, you could go do co-ownership on your own. You'd find the property, you'd put it in an LLC, you'd probably hire a property manager to, to manage the experience or you'd divvy up the responsibilities on your own. Structurally, Picasso works in the exact same way. The only difference is that we're really providing an end-to-end -end experience through our marketplace that starts with aggregating the right homes to aggregating the group of buyers to come together. Many of the buyers don't even know each other when they come together to own a property, all the way through to managing every little detail from bill pay to maintenance, to providing an innovative scheduling technology so that all the owners get fair and equitable access to the calendar. So, you know, that's the main value proposition is you get more home at less cost for none of the headaches or hassles that are customary with whole home ownership of the past. That's great, Elston. I, I can already think of some of the questions people will be asking about that model, like how do you handle scheduling to make sure that all eight co-owners have access when they want it, especially around things like major holidays? That's the number one question. You, you nailed it. That's the number one question that we get when, when somebody connects with one of our sales professionals. And the way that we solve that problem is through a really innovative technology that we've developed called SmartStay. And SmartStay is, is effectively a shared calendar 
with a series of rules and algorithms on the back end that distribute the calendar in a fair and equitable way amongst the ownership group. So if you own, you know, one fourth of the home, for example, you will be smart stay will guarantee that you get access to one fourth of the peak season, one fourth of the non peak season and one fourth of the holidays. And it does that in a really dynamic way. It's not it's not like one of these deals where there's sort of a draft and the whole calendar gets forecasted out in advance. It's not like that at all. It's dynamic. You just simply open up your Picasso app. You look at the calendar. You can see 24 months in advance and you can block time in your home as far out as 24 months or as near as two days. And the algorithm ensures that everybody's getting fair and equitable access. The other thing to note, though, about our model is that the more diverse the ownership group is, and, and by diversity, I'm referring mostly to travel preference diversity, the less inherent schedule conflict you get right out of the gate. And our homes are utilized on average almost 90% of the time once they're fully sold, which is six to seven times as much as a normal second home. It's even more utilized than a, a short-term rental, believe it or not. It occupies like a primary home because the owners are using the home throughout the whole year. And the only way that that works is, is because not all owners desire to use the home at the same time. Like my wife and I, we prefer to use our second home during the shoulder seasons. Like where, where we bought our second home in Lake Tahoe, the, the location I mentioned to you was, was the, the place that really inspired this idea in the first place. The two busiest weeks of the year in Lake Tahoe are 4th of July and New Year's. I mean, there is no inventory available in the entire market on those two weeks. My wife and I have never been up there, you know, in nine years on 4th of July or New Year's, nor do we desire to. We prefer the shoulder season because there's less traffic, less lines. You know, it's, it's just that it feels like a, a better experience for us. So this assumption that everybody wants to use the home at the same time is true only if you've got the same type of people with kids that are the same age, with all the exact same interests owning the home together. But if you diversify the group of owners in the home, you get much less schedule conflict than you would imagine. And the way that our owners describe this is that they get about 80% of what they would have wanted out of the calendar, meaning you're not getting 100% because you don't own 100% of the home, but you're going to get 80% of what you want. And they're happy to make that trade-off because it's 85% less expensive to buy and operate on an ongoing basis. That brings up some of the pain points people associate with you know, sharing in real estate and in particular bad experiences with timeshare. And Picasso is not timeshare. Could you explain the distinction between Picasso's co-ownership model and timeshare? There's a lot of differences. The biggest difference is, is probably what you actually own. With, with this model, you're buying real estate. You know, all you're sharing is ownership. You're not sharing time. When you buy a, a resort timeshare, you're prepaying for the right to use a hotel room. So that's that's the biggest difference. And like, here's here's the litmus you know, test that I use. Let's say that you buy into XYZ Vacation Club through, through one of these you know, hotel timeshare programs. And then fast forward five years, the, the hotel timeshare operator goes out of business. What are you left with? A piece of paper. There's nothing that has any value, nothing that you can sell. There's no intrinsic value. Market value of those timeshares is so low. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're buying into a program, you're buying into a, a hotel product and a set of amenities. And with Picasso, you just own real estate. If you were to snap your fingers and Picasso were to go out of business, you own a house. 
you know, you and four or five other people own a house together. So it's really like comparing an asset to a liability. With Picasso, you're buying a piece of real estate that behaves like any other real estate, single family real estate asset. The second big difference though, I think is the the type of product. We're talking about unique single family homes, you know, in normal residential locations. These these aren't hotel products that are part of a larger development. And then I would say that the final point, which sort of relates to the first two, is the number of people involved. You know, timeshares are are these, you know, time blocks that are sold in increments of 52. You buy one week at a time. So if you take a 300 room hotel, for example, a typical size hotel, um, and you turn it into a timeshare project, each room gets split 52 ways. So that's 52 times 300 is 15,000 units in the same property, 15,000 units available for sale. The most that a Picasso home is ever divided is up to eight. And most of the time, it's only five or six people that actually own the house. In some cases, as little as two people that own the house. Because you're with Picasso, you're able to buy as little as 12.5%, which is one eighth, or as much as 50%. So it's very common for people to buy you know, multiple interest. So there's a very limited amount of people with very unique properties and true ownership. So let's say you buy, let's just walk through an example. Let's say you buy a beautiful second home, luxury home through Picasso. You buy an eighth and it's a $4 million house. So you're spending a half a million dollars for access to that home for an eighth of the time. Can you leverage that? Can you get mortgage financing? Does Picasso arrange that for you? Yeah, you can leverage it through Picasso. So that's an integrated part of our experience. We have several banking partners that participate in this program that we offer. And we offer 70%, up to 70% LTV financing at very competitive rates. It's super easy. Pre-approval process is, is very quick, same day, and it's all integrated into the experience. So to buy into that $4 million home that you alluded to, you would need $150,000 down or 30% of 500, which is about one eighth of the $4 million price. So you're essentially democratizing access to luxury second home ownership. And, a, and another way to think about it is we're also supercharging people's buying power. Like where, where I live, my primary home is in Napa Valley. And I used to live in, in San Francisco, but a few years ago, I, I moved to Napa. And there's a lot of people in San Francisco that, that want to own you know, second homes in Napa Valley. And there's a lot more people out there that have half a million or million dollar budgets than people that have four or $5 million budgets. So what was happening in the past, pre-Picasso, is these families were going up and, and you know snatching up all the median price homes, right? All these second home cash buyers were going into markets like Napa Valley and snapping up median price homes. And what that was doing is it was making it you know, near impossible for a primary homeowner to be able to afford a home, you know, in their hometown. One of the benefits of this model is that it actually supercharges buying power. So those people that would have previously been buying $500,000 to $1 million homes can now buy part of a four or $5 million home. So we're actually, in addition to empowering consumers to buy more, we're actually redirecting them away from the median tier to the luxury tier, which also happens to be really good for housing and for housing affordability, just by making better use of these underutilized assets. And for diversity and economic opportunity and equality in those communities, that's, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about purchase incentives and secondary liquidity in the Picasso market. 
And just to use an analogy, you know, Elon Musk, who's the man of the moment right now, famously offered Model S owners a, a backstop on value to buy a Tesla Model S. And he backstopped it with a secondary market value on the Mercedes S-Class to kind of encourage wealthy customers to try out his electric vehicles. Are you doing something similar to encourage first-time buyers to come in and try Picasso? It's a great question. And the answer is, is yes. So we have a 100% transfer guarantee is, is what we call this, this benefit. And it means that when you buy a Picasso, if you're not satisfied for any reason, or if you just change your mind, like let's say you bought and you know veil and then you decided that you wanted to be an aspen instead no problem we allow you to transfer to any other picasso in the world you know no questions asked for what you paid so if you paid you know half a million dollars for your unit in veil and you decided you wanted to upgrade to a you know million dollar unit in aspen we take your five hundred thousand dollars apply it to that purchase and same day you could move into a new home. So yeah, we make it really easy. And the whole process, I mean, ease is sort of, you know, one of the core attributes of the entire transaction experience that we really focus a lot on. People are busy. There's enough hassle and stress, you know, in, in our normal lives that buying your second home shouldn't be stressful. So we try to make the entire process seamless for both consumers, but also all of our real estate agent partners out there who help to support the Picasso marketplace and ecosystem in all the markets where we operate. Well, that's certainly a compelling you know, reason to, to, to try out Picasso and, and give it a shot. What do you think about the business long term? How do you create a liquid secondary market for Picasso owners in Picasso properties after that first initial tryout period of one year? Yeah, well, at, at the most basic level, it's like any market, it's primary or secondary. It's a function of supply and demand. And there is an abundance of demand for second homes. I mean, demand for second homes has existed for decades and decades, and it's been pent up and underserved for a long time. When we survey our audience, which are households above 150K in household income, 75% of those families aspire to own a second home. I mean, this is a widespread you know, ambition that people have, and it accounts for tens of millions of families in the US and Europe alone. So there is an abundance of demand. But the other thing that's happened recently, as we all now have a front row seat into, is the work from home phenomenon that has surfaced as a result of the pandemic, where there's a lot more people now. And this is a permanent secular shift that's here to stay. A lot more people, millions of families, have more flexibility now than they had in the past to work remote, either part-time or full-time. So now more families can actually use a second home, you know, five or six weeks a year. Whereas in a world where you had to be in the office five or six days a week, that was difficult. So all that pent up demand became a lot more actionable in this new work from home world that we live in. And there's just not enough supply and it's not getting any cheaper. Home prices are continuing to climb, albeit at slightly slower rates than what we've experienced for the last couple of years, but they're still climbing because there's way more demand than supply. As interest rates go up, Whole homes become that much less affordable because the payments start to ratchet up exponentially as the interest rates climb. So as we see into the future, we just see a world where there are literally tens of millions of families who could realize their dreams through this model. And for as long as there's a lot more demand than supply in our secondary market, we believe that the market is going to continue to be very vibrant as we've seen so far. So far, all the the units that have resold in our ecosystem have sold in less than 10 days. 
for 15% more than what the owners paid previously. So it's a very vibrant and liquid secondary market. That's great to hear. So you, what you're touching on here is really kind of also what the size of the market opportunity is for Picasso. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. You started on the West Coast, you expanded across into 40 markets. Some of those markets are now international. How global an opportunity is this? And, and how do you quantify the size of the market opportunity for Picasso? Yeah, I mean, it's it's massive. I mean, the, the total global opportunity definitely starts with a, a T. You know, it's in the trillions. And the way that we look at the, the market opportunity, I mean, is really by looking at supply and demand and, you know, how much of that supply and demand is serviceable. So on the supply side, there's north of 100 million second homes around the world. And almost 30 million of those second homes are in the first two geographies that we're focused on, which are the U.S. and Europe. And by, by U.S., we also include Mexico and the Caribbean in that. And most of those second homes sit vacant for 10 plus months per year. So we're talking about tens and tens of millions of empty second homes are, are the opportunity on the supply side. On the demand side, there's north of 50 million families that are in our income range, 75% of which aspire to own a second home. And that's just in the US and Europe. So if you include global opportunity, it's probably it's well beyond, you know, 100 million families that are in that world. It's a massive, massive opportunity. And how many of those people are going to choose co-ownership as their solution for their their second home? You know, it, it's hard to know for sure, but I think it's a lot. I mean, as, as, as I look five to 10 years from now, I think co-ownership will become not just like a widely accepted way to own a second home. I think it'll become the preferred. I mean, it's smarter fiscally, socially. It's better for community. It's better for housing affordability. It's better for the environment because fewer homes need to be built when you, when you utilize those, those empty homes. I mean, it is the smartest way to own a second home. And it's like, it's like the ownership version of the sharing economy. So if, if Airbnb for housing, if Airbnb is like the rental solution, the, share, the rental sharing economy solution for this type of housing, we are the ownership solution of the sharing economy. And I think the opportunity is a lot bigger than the sharing you know, economy rental uh, opportunity. And the, the other thing that's pretty interesting about co-ownership is that we're not just serving people who would have bought a second home at some point in their lives anyway. We're actually, in some ways, we're expanding the TAM, you know, kind of like Uber did with riders. Like uh, originally, many investors thought that Uber was just going to serve and take share away from taxis and serve people who rode taxis. But I never rode in taxis. But now I'm a, a regular Uber user, right? I mean, they started with black cars and limousines with ordinary everyday cars as kind of the core product. Is is that something you do with Picasso? Do you, do you go to a broader market opportunity, more affordable second home tertiary markets, kind of below the luxury market eventually? Yes, but we will always be luxury within the markets where we operate. To finish that one thread on the, on the TAM expansion, where I was going with that is we're starting to see a new cohort, a different cohort of personas that are emerging, more nomadic personas. Like I talked to a, a family the other day who just bought four Picasso units, four separate Picassos in four separate locations in the same week. And this family lives in Chicago, so they wanted to get away for the winter. They couldn't justify owning a whole second home for all the reasons we've discussed. So they bought four separate homes and they're going to live nomadically across those homes. On a regular basis, I meet people who are basically renting in their primary home location and they bought their first home ever as a second home through Picasso. 
Like that was actually my situation. And when I was living in San Francisco, my wife and I were renting a small apartment in, in downtown near our office. And the first home we bought in California was our second home. So I think we're going to see this nomadic cohort really start to emerge. And as we expand into more markets, you know, naturally the prices will come down because we started in the most expensive destinations. So as we go into markets with lower median priced homes, our unit prices will come down, but we will always be luxury relative to that market. And usually that means two to four times the median price. Okay. Yeah. Well, I started to see that on the site. I mean, you've moved from places like Aspen and Jackson, Wyoming to Bend, Oregon and, you know, North Carolina, for example. Now that we've sort of quantified the market size and the opportunity, let's talk a little bit about the, the business model. You know, here, here at Oppenheimer, we, we're investors and investment bankers, and we look for disruptive business models that have a sustainable technology-based competitive advantage, allows them to grow into you know, clear market leaders, very often by creating a whole new market category, which is clearly what you're doing with Picasso with this co-ownership model in real estate. Aside from the scheduling software that you described earlier, what is Picasso's core differentiator and how is that sustainable? This is a really interesting question, Robin. I'm glad you asked it. And the, the answer is a bit you know, nuanced because this is one of these businesses that like has a lot of moving pieces and a lot of things have to work together consistently for us to deliver great experiences for our customers every single time. It's kind of like, you know, like take Amazon as an example. Anybody can just spin up a website today and sell widgets, but not just anybody can do it like Amazon. You know what I mean? There's like so many moving pieces, their ability to have the wide selection and their AI and ML that enables them to suggest, you know, products that people would want and their buying power that enables them to get best prices and their, you know, shipping and logistics and fulfillment infrastructure that enables them to deliver stuff next day every single time. Like, you know, all those things collectively are what define, you know, Amazon's competitive moat. Our business is the same way. This is a big, what's going to become a big marketplace on a global scale with lots of customers, lots of markets, and lots of layers in the service experience that's all technology enabled. And as we get larger and larger and smarter and smarter, as more time passes, all of those things become advantaged in our model. We're able to identify the right homes more quickly. We're able to aggregate you know, groups of buyers more efficiently around the right homes and within the right syndicates. We're able to offer better financing. You know, we're able to offer stronger secondary market liquidity. Our brand is more well-known, right? Like we already have 15%, you know, brand awareness on a national scale. And we've only been investing in marketing for a year and a half. That's a really powerful metric to have, but it's growing quickly, right? Like all these things collectively is what you know, establishes a really big competitive moat. And as it gets bigger, the scale effects and the network effects just start turning the flywheel faster and faster and faster. Uh, not to mention like, you know, all of our partners, you know, Picasso doesn't just operate in a vacuum. We operate with lots of partners in every community where, where we serve. We partner with property managers. We partner with cleaners, handymen, wineries, real estate agents, you know, real estate agents is a a good example, I, you know, I've been a real estate agent since I was 18. And in my last business, all we did is serve real estate agents. And we had about a million agents 
that were registered on our, our platform. And I care a lot about real estate agents just having come from that industry. And real estate agents are effectively like an extension of our team. We've built a real estate agent partner program where real estate agents get paid full commissions and, and benefit from other perks and incentives that we've created that really make this a great tool in their toolkit to serve their clients. So it's really all of that stuff collectively. And you know, my philosophy on competition as a, as a business leader is just focus on execution. Like we try to focus on hiring the best people, empowering those people to do their best work and executing well against our strategies. And if we do that and serve our customers well, you know, I think, you know, any new competition that surfaces in the future will become re less relevant over time. That makes sense. So pretty strong first mover advantage here as the pioneer in the space and a competitive mode of partnerships around that, which uh, which augment the kind of technology advantage you have in the scheduling software. That all makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about the model, the revenue model. You're a CEO of this company and you know you serve two constituents, right? customers and co-owners is your first and most important, but also you have investors in the company who put a lot of capital in at a pretty strong valuation to support Picasso's growth. What's the revenue model that is underpinning investor interest here? And, and why is that attractive to other investors as you grow the business and fund it through growth equity capital? It's a tech-enabled marketplace business that has a variety of revenue streams that are kind of integrated into the whole experience. The primary revenue stream today is a service fee that we charge on the front end in exchange for setting this whole thing up and finding the properties and aggregating the group of buyers and putting together the legal framework and you know everything else that we do. And that's a 12% service fee that we charge that's baked into the unit price. So if you go to our website and you see a beautiful Picasso for half a million dollars and wherever, Palm Springs, a portion of that is a service fee that goes to us. And it's about a 12% markup which works out to about 11% of the total price mathematically. Then we have a variety of other services that play out over time. So one of those services are management fees. We manage these properties on an ongoing basis and provide, you know, the cleaning, the repairs, the maintenance, and, you know, all, all other things associated with operating a home. Financing is another thing that we provide. Anybody who finances, finances through Picasso, and we make a little bit of money you know, on those transactions as well. But these types of things compound over time as recurring revenues, right, that, that become much larger at scale. Um, and then the final piece is the, the secondary market transactions. So on the secondary market transactions, we have a marketplace take rate on those transactions where we're effectively like a, you know, a listing agent, if you will, anytime a unit gets resold. And that flywheel just keeps turning, you know, over and over and over again. So it's a, it's a lifetime relationship that we have, you know, anytime we bring a home into our marketplace and anytime an owner becomes a Picasso owner, we think about it as a lifetime relationship and there's a lot of money to be made along the way. But the thing that I really spend a lot of time thinking about in the context of our revenue model is it really starts with value creation for the customer. You know, I don't believe that companies should be able to just like extract money out of their customers for no reason. They should get paid for providing value. And the reason why our customers are willing to you know, pay us for the service is because it delivers a ton of value. On the front end, it saves them 85% when compared to their second best alternative, which is buying a whole home. And on an ongoing basis, since you only have to pay for one eighth or one quarter, you know, depending on how much you own. So it saves them that same roughly 85% 
on an ongoing basis throughout the life of the relationship. And then all the other services that I mentioned around, you know, management and resale and financing, these are all things that add a ton of value to the customer as well, because what our customers really want is they want to enjoy their home. They don't want to deal with what happens when the air conditioner breaks on a hot day. And they have Picasso to deal with that. It's really a great relationship that we have with our customer. We have a, a nice, healthy business model, but it's also the numbers are, are you know, almost a rounding error for our customers in the context of the savings that they generate when compared to the second best alternative of buying a whole home. So is it fair to describe you as a, a curated marketplace? I mean, you're, you're finding high-end inventory, you're preparing it, you're handling the transaction, you're furnishing it. I mean, you, you yourself are actually an architect, is that correct? I, I never got my architecture license, but I do have an architecture degree. I went to undergrad for architecture. I think that's a very fair way to articulate it. You know, curated marketplace, managed marketplace, but the marketplace element, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're connecting people, aspiring second homeowners with second homes, right? That are for sale in these increments of one eighth. And as people start to resell, their units or transfer their units to other Picassos in the ecosystem, those secondary market transactions become direct buyer to seller, kind of classic two-sided marketplace transactions from that point forward. So the, the public comparables for Picasso out there and presumably as a unique market leading platform, you know, you have the public markets eventually in sight for Picasso. You don't need to comment on that, by the way. That's a big question, especially right now. <laughs> um, the public comparables would be yeah, it would be Airbnb and Uber and other sort of large scale marketplaces that are that are involved in the sharing economy and unlocking the full value of, of hard assets. Is that fair to say? Well, there's a lot of radical differences in Airbnb in, in the, you know, the type of customer that they're serving. I think it is fair to to think about this as like if Airbnb is the rental version of second homes, this is the ownership version of second homes. You know, and the marketplace dynamics are very similar. And if you, I mean, if you think back to before Airbnb was created, like Airbnb didn't invent short-term rentals or couch surfing. It existed long before Airbnb. There were both moderately big and, and many small companies that were doing versions of what Airbnb was doing. But what Airbnb did is that was, that was novel, I think, is they were very successful in building a large marketplace, a large global brand leveraging technology to create really seamless experiences that enabled short-term rentals to become mainstream and accessible to a broad audience of people. That was the difference that Airbnb enabled. The same opportunity exists with co-ownership. We didn't invent this. Co-ownership's been around for a long time. In fact, many of the markets where we operate, you know, co-ownership accounts for 20% of homes in these markets. You know, children inherit homes from their family, friends own homes together. I mean, this model has been around for a while, but it's very hard to do on your own. It's very risky to do on your own. And the experience is terrible. Many friends who try to do this on their own end up frenemies. So what we're doing is making it mainstream through the tech-enabled marketplace and the service layer and the brand You know that enables people to be able to actually go do this and not have to know the other people and trust that when they want to sell at a future date, that there's a resale market for it and that they can get financing and all the other stuff that doesn't exist in the do-it-yourself world. So you, you've essentially tech-enabled this co-ownership model in order to allow it to scale to a, a massive global scale. 
That, that's great. As we sort of get to the end of this discussion here, maybe maybe you could end with telling us a little bit about Picasso's financial success to date. You know how you finance the business, who your financing partners are, and investors are in the business, because I think that will speak to the quality of the, the company and its business model with this audience. Yeah, absolutely. So we've financed the business through a combination of equity and debt. We've raised about two hundred and twenty million in total equity from a bunch of really fantastic investors from a SoftBank, Graycroft, Mavron, Global Founders Capital, Crosscut, Fifth Wall, and many others. We also have quite a few, you know, notable angel investors. My co-founder Spencer Raskoff is one. You know, Howard Schultz was a big investor in in our first round. Jeff Wilkie from Amazon. You know, we've got a number of really fantastic people like that that we've surrounded the business with and uh, and that's really important to us. You know, at the end of the day, businesses are just people. And if you could surround the business with great people, good, good things tend to follow that. On the debt side, we also have secured more than a billion dollars in debt that enables us to finance the conversion of these whole homes into Picasso homes. And we have a variety of, of capital partners that we use on that front. And um, yeah, it, it works really well. The business is really off to a a great start. It's growing faster than we could have ever imagined. We did about just under 300 million in revenue in our first year, which was 2021. And, you know, we're, we're forecasting big growth from there in 2022 and, and obviously beyond. Um, and I think I mentioned already that we're, we're in about 30 markets or almost 40 markets now throughout the US and Europe, and we're growing that quickly as well. We're also fully distributed, meaning we don't have any offices. We're about 300 employees now. And our, we call them crew. So our crew members are spread across 35 states and six or seven countries. So that was a decision that we made before the pandemic to be fully distributed. And wow, that's been just an amazing ride. I mean, the, the ability to attract crew members from anywhere in the world and empower people with more autonomy and, you know, flexibility to live, you know, wherever they want has, has been a pretty cool experience. And, I've become a huge advocate and believer in the distributed work environment. That's amazing. So can you tease us a little with uh, some of the new exciting destinations you're opening in 2022? They're pretty obvious. If you sort of zoom out and think about where, where people own second homes, our markets tend to correlate with markets that already have a high concentration of second homes because that's where the demand is. Because we're very demand driven. Like at the end of the day, Picasso exists to, to serve the owners, right? The, the people who actually own these second homes. So we're very demand driven. But, you know, some examples would be the Northeast. I mean, we started in California and, and we're kind of working our way east. So uh, we're expanding throughout Florida. We're expanding in the Northeast. We've got our eyes in some markets throughout places like Texas. I already hinted at Mexico. There's a couple of really obvious destinations there. I don't think we've announced our first destination yet, so I'll, I'll, I'll hold on that. But coming soon in Mexico, we're also working on the Caribbean. We just announced London, so we started in, in south of Spain as our first European market, just expanded to, to London, and there's, there's a bunch of stuff in the periphery of London that's really interesting. And then all the other obvious destinations throughout Europe, from Italy to France to Portugal to Switzerland, there's a bunch of great markets there that we're really excited about. But if you're if you're listening to this podcast and interested in the destination, you know, please reach out Picasso.com, P-A-C-A-S-O.com. 
one of the cool things about our model is it's not it's not always limited to the markets that we're currently in. Meaning if you if you reach out and you find a home that you love in a market that maybe we're not in yet, but it's a market that we're planning to be in, you know, we have a, a program that we call lead buyer where you could actually be the first buyer and bring a home to us. And um, like, like, let's say you brought us a home in the Northeast, Robin, in a market that we're not currently in. Um, and we like the home too. We'll actually go in and buy the home with you and use it as the first home to open up a new market. So that's another you know, cool feature for anybody who, who's looking at our website and hasn't found their dream market yet. I may take you up on that, Austin. Please, please do. You know who to call. <laughs> So anyone in the audience, please check out Picasso's inventory of homes at Picasso.com. Or you could do what I did, which was to download the Picasso mobile app on my phone and set notifications for Picasso to send me new home listings as they come up in second home markets that I'm interested in, uh, including London. It's a lot of fun and, and the, the properties are beautiful and certainly quite compelling. As you've heard, the value proposition from Austin here today is, is really quite unique. And I uh, just want to say thanks very much, Austin, for joining us and for walking us through both the business, the, the customer value proposition and the business model today. Very excited to have had you on the podcast. And I'm sure that our audience will be reviewing your inventory of home listings here shortly. Well, Robin, thank you so much as well. I mean, we're, we're big fans of, of yours and big fans of Oppenheimer. And it's, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast and look forward to seeing you all soon. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode, and remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.